นโมทัสสะบุคคลทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคลทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคลทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะอาจารย์ก็ไม่ใช่ความหมายของการตั้งคำถามว่าอะไรคืออะไรอาจารย์ก็ไม่ใช่ความหมายของการตั้งคำถามว่าอะไรคืออะไรอาจารย์ก็
But the Buddha wasn't into Buddha images. You, know, you, you probably know that, but just in case you don't, I'll tell you, the Buddha wasn't into Buddha images. There's one recorded story in the scriptures where, where there was one young monk just sitting there admiring the Buddha. Apparently he was very beautiful, I mean, stunningly beautiful to look at, and, and uh, everything about him, his proportion, his complexion, his, you, know, you just look at him as a sort of a radiance coming off, and there was this one young monk sitting, staring, adoring the Buddha, and, uh, and the Buddha said, um, you know, rather you're looking at the wrong thing, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, really told him off, actually. said, you know, you need to focus a little deeper, go beyond the way the surface appears. You know, I don't know exactly what he went to in terms of detail, but the message was don't look at the surface appearance. The surface appearance of the Buddha might be beautiful, but what's deeper? What is the consciousness of the Buddha? What is the consciousness of the Buddha? That's a good question. Instead of, wow, isn't the Buddha beautiful? You know, I mean, sometimes people come to the Dhamma Hall and say, wow, isn't that Buddha image beautiful? It is, it's very beautiful. I like looking at it as well. But what do we project onto the Buddha image? Do we, do we see in the Buddha images all the answers and hope that somehow if we study more Buddhism or listen to more Dhamma talks or go on more retreats or whatever, that we're going to get more information about the Buddha and about the Dhamma and then somehow that's going to solve all our problems? I would suggest that if we see the Buddha as the answers, then we're not seeing the Buddha. Really, if we see the Buddha as a great big question, if the Buddha reflects our questions, then we're seeing the Buddha. Remember when, just before the Buddha died, the very last things the Buddha said was, has anybody got any questions? He was so interested in people asking their questions. We've all got our questions. We've all got our own questions. They don't form themselves in the same way. That's why we've got to be careful about religious or spiritual experts who tell us the answers. Just guess, say, okay, you you have your answers and let somebody else listen to your answers. But I'm really interested in my questions. Well, the best you can do with somebody else's answers is believe in them. And the Buddha was very explicit about that. Don't believe in them. Even his closest disciples. In the Venerable Sariputta, the Buddha was giving a discourse on on profound aspects of the teachings, and the Buddha asked him, you know, well, what do you think about that, Sariputta? And Sariputta said, Let's, I'll go away and think about it. And the Buddha said, very good. Very good, that's a good answer. You know, he didn't say, you know, you should believe in me, no way. That, that wasn't what he was looking for. He said, don't do that. You know, that's not yours. That doesn't, just because you think it's a good idea or it sounds logical or impressive, I mean, it can be a very impressive argument. You know, great teachers can come up with very inspiring, uplifting, profound, beautiful uh, presentations of their own insight. I know myself there are certain books around that I've refused to read because as soon as I picked them up and looked out, I thought, wow, this, this approximates the truth too closely. The feeling I have about this is it's too close to approximating the truth. I'm going to start imitating it. And that's not... The Buddha didn't teach like that. What the Buddha did was... He stirred us up in a way whereby we were supposed to be inspired to ask our questions. How can I be free from suffering? Yeah. Because that's pretty relevant. Yeah. That's, that's really relevant. I mean, if we weren't suffering, we wouldn't be bothering putting ourselves through all this palaver, for sure. You know, we do all these things because what? What is it? What is it that really matters in our life? That's the question. So I would suggest, again, that uh, if 
Well, when we find ourselves losing the edge in our spiritual discipline, our spiritual effort, that instead of just slapping a judgment on ourselves about how we should be, that we remember this question, because that's what motivated us in the beginning. How can I do something realistic about this? This predicament I find myself in. And we don't run to find an answer. We're not, we're not supposed to, we don't ask that question because we're running to get a clever answer. That's perhaps, you know, we have that kind of conditioning in school. You know, the quicker you can put up your arm and say, I know, sir. Well, the more points you get. Well, that's not the Buddha's way. The Buddha didn't want you to put up your arm. He wanted you actually to sit there, close your eyes and go inwards and feel the question. Let the question take your attention deep. If it's it's our own real question, it will take us deeper. If we just borrow somebody else's question, it it won't go very deep. It won't get very far. But if we feel for and listen to our own question and we start to feel for how we're going to express it, then it will take us deeper. And we will start to find our own resolution to the question, which is different from an answer. A resolution to the question of how can I be free from suffering is we experience letting go. We experience, we have the moment of experiencing that the suffering is caused by hanging on to the wrong thing in the wrong way. And when we experience that, we have the, that's the resolution to the question, to the predicament. So we can make a discipline of this. Uh, I don't literally mean replacing a beautiful Buddha image with a question mark, uh, but we can make a discipline of listening to the questions, really honouring the fact that we do have questions. Um, as I said, the, the Buddha didn't encourage Buddha images, he didn't even encourage staring at the Buddha. He did encourage uh, the Dhammachaka, having a Dhammachaka, the wheel as a symbol. He did encourage uh, the Bodhi tree and uh, these images and the empty seat where the Buddha gave his first discord. He did say there are symbols that we could use that will quicken our faith and remind us that there are those who have asked their questions until they found a complete resolution for themselves to all their questions. And so he didn't say it's not, there's never a place for remembering the teacher or the teachings but he, he actually didn't encourage the form of the Buddha image. As you probably know, these turned up when the Greeks arrived in Afghanistan, believe it or not. I mean, we don't tend to think about Afghanistan as the first great Buddhist empire, but sure enough, when the, it was when the Greeks turned up there, there was a very thriving Buddhist community, and um, what we know now are called the Gandhara Buddhas, which you will see in various museums around the world, uh, was something that the Greeks introduced. And you see the Buddha with toga and a top knot looking like a Greek god. And then, of course, as the Buddha image moved into India, into Sri Lanka, into Thailand, and Burma, and Cambodia, and Laos, and Tibet, and China, and Japan, and Korea, and Vietnam, and all the other countries, not to mention England, we too have our own Buddha images. They all look a little bit different. But whether we're using a Buddha image or not, what is wise, I would suggest, to reflect on is what are we projecting out onto the Buddha image? Are we expecting the Buddha to give us our answers or are we hearing the Buddha encourage us to find our questions and to find our questions, to listen to our questions and then how to acknowledge our questions, how to really uh, pick up our questions. Now, if we pick up our questions in a heedless way, well, then we can start getting demanding. Now, I found 
of my own spiritual practice uh, as, a, as a junior monk. Um, very question. In fact, it occurred to me on my first retreat as a layperson that asking the question of who is aware, a very inspiring question. Yeah. The mind got a little bit peaceful and, and then there was the perception of there's just awareness or there's just knowing. And then the deeper question came up and said, but who knows or who's aware? And that became even more peaceful. And so this questioning, this line of investigation, I found very attractive. And then I discovered that there's, there is a whole tradition of, of using this as a, as a line of inquiry, as a form of a dhamma-vichaya or investigating reality. Sri Ramana Maharshi in, in India, many of you will have heard of a great saint in India for the last century who would use this as a tool. He used to say it's the stick that you use to turn the corpse when you're burning the, the body in the fire, you know, you, you've got to have a stick to turn it. I'd probably, none of you, maybe a few of you have been to India and it sounds a bit gross in this context, but, you know, if you're faced with having to burn a corpse, which traditionally throughout most of humanity we have been faced with such things, you do need a stick to turn it because it doesn't burn otherwise. And uh, no, I've seen it myself that uh, I won't go into the details, but uh, you do need a stick to turn this thing. And, but then he said eventually you throw the stick in the fire. So it's not you're holding onto the stick. This your meditation tool is for that. It's for actually dealing with this conundrum, this this quandary that we're stuck in, this existence that we know we were born, we have this dreadful feeling that we're going to die, and what's it all about? It can be amazingly wonderful. It can be absolutely beautiful. It can be extraordinarily blissful at times, but also it can be excruciatingly painful. It can be horrendous. Uh, and what are we supposed to make of this mess? That's a good question. And what, what are we supposed to make of this mess? Well, you know, that's the stick that we're using, using to turn this quandary in the fire of our investigation. But it's not we're grasping at the stick. You know, eventually we also have to be ready to let go of the stick. And so it is with our meditation techniques, our meditation tools, our inquiry. We need to hold it in the right way. Master Xu Yun, also the Chinese tradition, used the same technique. I think in the Chinese tradition it's called the Hua To, where you, you ask this question, who? And uh, in our own tradition in, um, in Thailand, uh, the, the Venerable Ajahn Man, a highly respected teacher of the last century, and one of his disciples, uh, Ajahn Fan, came to him one day and, and was talking about his practice and and said that he had a lot of fear in his practice. And Ajahn Man's reply was, who's afraid? So this is a great lineage. This is a great, you know, this is a no doubt about it. It's uh, And I've had a good feeling for it. But I found out in my own uh, inquiries into this asking who, that I wasn't asking who is interested, who is wanting. I was was with this incredible demanding... (laughs) Uh, kind of attitude, and and I was hurting myself. Uh, it was like, uh, you know, when I was uh, in the years of being brought up as a Christian, they, they would tell you, ask and ye shall be given, seek and ye shall find. But nobody ever taught me how to ask. Because if you ask as an arrogant brat, demanding that you get the solution, it's, it's not, you're going to get something, but probably not the solution. You're going to get more stress. And so how we hold our question, our precious question, 
our precious question is going to take our attention deeper into our own quandary until we find our own resolution. It's very important. So identifying our own questions, recognising that the Buddha praised finding our own question, finding how to word it, finding how to form the question, and then also carefully how to hold the question. We're holding it in a mindful way. We're not, we're not holding it in a demanding way. If we do that, well, that's just greed. That's why at the beginning of the meditation this evening, I mentioned and encouraged us all to establish ourselves with a heart of loving kindness, with a caring attitude, before we pick up the, the meditation, the primary meditation object, and bring about any intensification or increased focus. Because if we do intensify the mind, if we intensify consciousness, and we don't have this capacity for integrating what happens, then we can actually make the condition a lot worse. And so asking our question, finding our question, asking our question, holding our question in the right way is very important. And, and one of the important factors of this is, is to have this heart of loving kindness. To, to sometimes be willing to even put our question down for a while. You know, sometimes, you know, like with um, mindfulness of breathing, you know, sometimes you can be focusing on your breathing and you can be concentrating on it. You're not being mindful at all. You think you're being mindful. But what you're really doing is just concentrating because in your first experience of meditation you concentrated on the breath and then eventually you broke through into this wonderful experience of stillness where the heart and the mind and the body all came together into one pointedness and this tranquility which is like something probably never experienced before and so organic, so appropriate and so beautiful. And you think, well, I want to have that again. So you come back in your meditation with more greedy concentration and you're trying to get this experience. And, and then you forget that really what the Buddha was talking about was mindfulness. You know, mindfulness of breathing. Anapana sati, sati. Mindful attention to anapana, to breathing in and breathing out. And, but uh, sometimes we uh, get so caught up in our stuff, again, that we forget to be mindful and so it, sometimes it's the case that we need to just put aside our concentrating on the breathing and come to cultivating a sense of a heart of loving kindness. May I be free from suffering. It's to concentrate on the thought. May I be free from greed, the pain of greed or ill will. Yeah, we can be busy meditating, making a lot of effort and and suddenly conditions conspire and, and then all we find is just full of anger for whatever reason. We can't handle a situation or uh, we're busy uh, trying to concentrate on our breathing but all we're doing is getting more and more angry because we're failing at our meditation. Well, sometimes what's called for is just to put aside even trying to meditate and just sit there and kindly generate the wish for your whole body mind, may I be free from the pain of ill will. May I be free from ill will? That's a very beautiful thing to think. And then maybe we find we actually get really interested in ill will. And the question rises, how do I get free from ill will? What is ill will? What is ill will? And that might be your precious question. What is anger? How do I get free from anger? And getting really interested in that 
can sometimes be the thing that takes us deeper instead of concentrating on the breath. I was relating this to somebody yesterday. They, well, they were relating with me about how they've been experimenting with, instead of trying to be in the office all day long with a smile on their dial and being positive about life, that they've actually let themselves feel frustrated and you know get a frown on their face and let their shoulders droop and really investigate what it feels like to be frustrated. And much to their surprise, they found actually it feels quite right. I'm a bit concerned about that because they thought that being spiritual, it was being positive all the time. And, and, uh, but his experience, his experience, and what he's really interested in is the reality of ill will, the reality of anger. And so with the, <clears throat> with the question of how can I be free from ill will, how can I be free from anger, we get interested in this question, you, know, you start to actually, we find we've got the containment, we've got the containment, of the ill will, we're not following the ill will. Now that you know, which is very important. You know, we've got the mindful sensing of the experience of ill will. We're in touch with ill will. We've got the careful containment of the passion. If we haven't got that mindful sensing of ill will, if we haven't got the containment of ill will, then it's true it can go up into the head, and you would get possessed by ill will, and then the stories start coming out, and then. I hate this person, I hate that person, and I want to do this and I want to do that, and you're getting all hot and, and you're getting sweaty, and you realise, well, actually, no, that's not the time to be investigating our question. We're not even ready for that. We've got to come back and just practice being kind with ourselves, just being gentle and being still. We're not ready to investigate. So that's also part of, of, of holding our precious question in the right way. There's a time to investigate, there's also a time to just relax and be still and be contented. But when we have our strength back, when we feel we have that mindful sensing of our predicament, whether it's ill will or sadness or loneliness, you know, then we hear that question, we feel that question in that body. How can I, in the body, how can I be free from boredom? Sometimes, you know, boredom, loneliness, if you're living on your own life, and so Boring, incredibly boring. The same tedious activity every day. You know, you've got to eat. I mean, how boring is that? You know, once you get past your adolescent years and your taste buds start to go, and food's just not that. I mean, you know, it's just not, after fifty, food is really not that interesting. I mean, you've got to try really hard to get interested in it. I mean, it's sort of interesting, but. Not like when you're 16 and you can stuff yourself with all these endothics. I mean, the older you get, the more boring life gets. Am I going to have to just endure this until I die? Well, that's a good question, though. Am I going to have to just endure this miserable ordeal until I die? That's a good question. That's a very important. Maybe that's your real question. You know, maybe that's your important, your precious question. Is this just one miserable ordeal that I'm going to have to endure? Well, don't just jump to conclusions with some sort of initial kind of conditioned answer, you know, the truth is you don't know. That's interesting as well. You know, I really don't know whether I'm going to have to endure this or not. You know, sadness, boredom. If we get really interested in boredom, then we, it encourages our mindfulness, our containment of the experience of boredom. We're not just going to go up into the head with superficial answers to try and get rid of it, which is what a lot of our conceptual understanding is all about. You know, there's conceptual answers to suffering, 
run off and read the books or something, rather listen to a teaching. We come with these conceptual answers, just a way of distracting ourselves from the experience of suffering. If we prepared ourselves properly and we really value our question, we come back and say, no, what is boredom? What is it anyway? And then we're not bored anymore. There's enthusiasm, there's interest, there's energy. And then as you get more, with enthusiasm, with interest, with energy, you get more focused. And then you start to get answers coming up. Real answers, resolution answers. That you start to see actually boredom is actually a form of irritation. Now, boredom's not nothing happening. You know, we tend to think boredom is nothing happening. There's definitely something happening. I'm irritated. I'm irritated with the fact there's nothing interesting going on. It's very different from being enraged about Rupert Murdoch or something or whatever, or disappointed with the All Blacks or whatever, you know, gets you enraged. Superficial kind of indignation, that's obvious to deal with. But the subtle, the subtle feelings of irritation that is the reality of boredom, once we see that, it's in the seeing, there's the letting go. And that's the resolution. And how do we get there? We didn't get there by trying to get the jhanas. We got there because we were interested in the reality of boredom. Now, you might think that boredom is not very attractive, but actually, if you really allow yourself to find what really matters to me right now is what I'm really interested in is not being bored. In reality, really not being bored, really not being lonely. Not just a superficial quick hit, but really. That's why we go for refuge to the Dhamma. The Dhamma means really. The Dhamma means reality. I go for refuge to reality. So if we do go for refuge to reality, and we are interested in the Buddha's example of his realization, complete realization of reality... I would encourage us that we check and see that even when we feel like we're losing the edge of practice or we've lost it and we've become a little dull in the place, we don't jump to conclusions about what went wrong, but we get interested in it. Get interested. Why don't I find the Buddha interesting anymore? Well, maybe we were projecting something out from the Buddha where we were looking for answers. If we think answers are out there, we're guaranteed to be disappointed. If what we project onto the Buddha is our interest in reality and our precious questions, then yes, we can bow to the Buddha. And yes, the Buddha will really give us something. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.